If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Today we um, are in the chapter where we meet Gideon, but we're not going to talk about Gideon at all. Um, So we're going to dwell a little bit more on the cycle that we've seen in Judges. So in Judges we've seen this cycle of sin and rebellion and oppression and repentance, deliverance, peace, And then it all goes around and around again. I hope you're following along through the book of Judges. And we've seen that's our lives, isn't it? In many ways, we have the cycle of things go well, and then we do something, and then feel bad, and then we go, uh, it gets better again, and get better. And then as Christians, often we go through a similar cycle. We might not call it rebellion and oppression, but we, our pursuit of God isn't kind of this linear graph, is it? We have our challenging times and moments, and Judges has got a lot to speak to us about that, but today we're going to look at the first 10, 10 chapters of Judges chapter 6, and we're going to um, delve in a little bit more into this cycle and what the author draws our attention to. So let's pray together, and then we will read. Father, we thank you for sustaining breath in our lungs today. We thank you, God, that you have kept us alive, that we might come to know you. Thank you, your patience is your kindness that would Give us opportunities to come to know you or to love and serve you. And so we ask for help now that we would um, see what you would have us see, that we'll know what you would have us know, and that our hearts would be softened to receive and comprehend the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's read Judges chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Familiar words. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian for seven years. Here again is the beginning of another cycle. And they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, the caves, and the strongholds. And so we see this pattern again. There's an enemy that's oppressing them. And in this case, they're hiding away. And it's slightly different this time. So we're going to read on Judges 6 verse 6. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now, because the cycle is familiar, we've got to be make sure that we don't miss the little details. Because the Bible has got lots of genres. If you like, the Bible is one is a library of 66 books, and there's different genres. There's poetry, and one of those would be history, amongst many others. But a lot of the history is selective history, because the author is trying to make a point. Okay, so when you see a repeated pattern, but there's subtle variations, the author's probably trying to make a point there. So we're going to see some of those variations today. And this time, it seems that the enemy is less interested in political control, just to obliterate, but actually is more interested in economic exploitation. So look at the details. We're told that they came like a swarm of locusts. We're told that it was impossible to number them let alone their camels. They plundered the crops. They killed or removed all the animals. They laid waste to the land, leaving nothing to eat. So Israel became poverty-stricken. So the enemy really seemed less interested in the people and just more interested in the resources. And they're oppressing the people, and so they've gone and hidden in caves and are hiding out in the mountain. This is significant intimidation, would you agree? It's significant turmoil. It's significant suffering, which is totally understandable, And eventually, after seven years, it takes them seven years, maybe the subjugation got worse and worse, but it's taken them seven years, eventually they cry out to the 
Lord, one of the things you get frustrated in in Judges is, guys, you know that crying out to the Lord works. Why are you waiting so long to realize what the true answer to all your problems is? But then we look at our own lives, don't we? We, we, like, we, we dabble and we compromise and we go and we go and we lose our joy and it takes us a long time to come back to the Lord and realize what's going on. But as they cry out to the Lord, we are left thinking, I know what's going to happen. God's going to raise up a deliverer. I mean, this is the Gideon chapter after all, isn't it? So God's going to raise up a deliverer and God's going to rescue them. But that's not what happens next this time. And we've got to ask ourselves, why? Why is it different this time? Why isn't it just, they've cried out, God responds and sends a deliverer. This time something else happens. Look what happens, verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, interesting phrase, remember that, the Lord sent a prophet to them. Do you think, God, I, 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 I like your prophets, but I need a, like a, a general. I need a mighty warrior to rescue me from the army. I don't need a preacher. <laughs> I need a deliverer. And it also says that they cried out because of Midian, which seems to hint that they cried out because of the enemy and because of what was happening to them, because life was tough. And we kind of think that's understandable, but as we'll see, there's little detail in that. But what God does is he sends a prophet with a message, not a deliverer with victory. And we need to ask ourselves, why? Why is it different this time? Let's have a look, read on a bit, verse 7 to 10. The Lord sent a prophet, and this is what the prophet said to them. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods and Amorites who live in the land, but you did not obey me. It's the same thing <laughs> again. Okay, so this is a message that God often sends to his people. We saw at the beginning, and this is what sets things in. God sends a sermon before he sends salvation. Okay, so just remember, they're oppressed seven years. They cry out to God because of Midian. God sends a prophet with a message to remind them how bad they've been, (laughs) rather than to send someone to save them. And the message that the prophet brings actually highlights what's going on here, I think. The message, the content of the sermon addresses what God has done, the fact that God's rescued them, freed them, taken them out of oppression, promised to be with them, driving out the nations before them, but once again they have not obeyed and they have not listened. It's not, like we said in week one, break the cycle, it's not that they have not remembered with their minds what God did, but their hearts are not living with that vibrant appreciation. We sang that song, the goodness is running after, it's running after me. You can sit there and sing that song and think, kind of know that's true, but it has no real impact on our hearts. And it's so easy to do that. You know, we get to the end of a song sometimes in worship, and I think, have I even paid attention to that because it's familiar? But there's other times where I think, I deliberately remember my life, and I think of times I've been alone, The brokenness around me has been painful, and I don't know how I got through, but only would have been the goodness of God. That changes how I sing the song. The first song, I know the truth, like they did, but I've forgotten it as a vibrant thing. But when I think about my life, where I've come from, and what God has done, and how He has held me, and fathered me, and cared for me, 
And wow, that's a different kind of singing that then comes out because the, the truth that I know is a truth that is alive to me. And this is what they seem to have forgotten again. So what it seems is happening is they cry out to God, but the aim of the sermon seems to be to try and convict them of the wrong they've done. So it can't be that their cry is a cry of repentance. Because when you repent before God, truly grieving your sin and what you've done against God, He doesn't throw your sin at you. He shows you Christ. So when God responds to their crying out with telling them what they're doing wrong, something else is actually going on there. Seems the aim of the sermon is to convict them of their rebellion and their sin. So I would say that it seems that their crying out to God is more about regret than repentance. Can you say regret? Can you say repentance? They are very, very different. It could be, because look, it says that they cried out because of Midian. They didn't cry out because they had grieved God. They didn't cry out because they had dishonored God. They didn't cry because they had seen their sin. They cried out because of Midian. Now, there's nothing wrong with crying out to God for help when He's your loving Father. He loves to help. But the content of the sermon seems to suggest that they maybe were seeing God because of His mercy more as a slot machine to cash in on when life got tough rather than a saviour to fall on because they had sinned. Okay? Because they've, they've cried out because of Midian and God sends a prophet to almost say, guys, Midian's not your real problem. Your real problem is your sin. You're turning away from God, which is why Midian came in the first place. So it seems that maybe because of God's mercy, he's become a slot machine that they can cash in on to make life comfortable and easy rather than a savior to fall upon. God, we're in trouble. Come and make life easier for us. God, I made a foolish decision and it's costing me my reputation and what people think of me. God, come and take care of my mess. That's very different from, God, I've sinned against you. Forgive me, I've dishonored your glory. Maybe they are more concerned with the discomfort of their lives than they are with dishonoring the Lord. And there you have the essence of the difference between regret and repentance. Regret is, my life is a, is, is, is a mess and it's uncomfortable and I really don't like it. Repentance is, I've dishonored you, Jesus. Yes, I don't like my life and it's a mess, but the main thing is that I've dishonored you. So you have repentance on one side and you have regret on the other side. Where in your life might you be more erring towards kind of concerned with the discomfort of your life rather than with dishonoring Jesus? The Bible makes the difference between the two super clear. So in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, the Bible says this. says, for godly grief, can you say godly grief? Produces a repentance. So when you grieve before God, it produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Or some versions say leads to life. Whereas worldly grief, can you say worldly grief? Worldly grief produces death. So when you just regret that things have gone bad and that things are hard, it pr produces death. Because all you do is you get into a cycle of, I feel terrible, it's bad, people don't think well of me. You've got nowhere to go with that. I mean, you could move away. <laughs> Okay, you could pretend it didn't happen, or you could just have no contact with those people anymore and try and escape it, but you can't get past it. 
you can try and escape it. Whereas with repentance, as we'll see, you can actually, in the face of it, you can hear a louder voice and live by a greater truth that God declares over you. So look at this table, okay? Just a little bit of time for us to think through and dwell on this table, the difference between regrets and repentance. Regret, the focus is more on sorrow over consequences than sorrow over sin. With regret, the focus is on self. With repentance, the focus is on God. In my pastoral experience, there's lots of gray areas for Christians, okay? There's lots, when I say gray, there's lots of areas where the Bible doesn't explicitly say, in this situation, do thus and thus. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice sometimes if the Bible said that? I'm not sure if it would, because I don't think we'd be able to. But there's lots of things in life where the actual action might not be right or wrong. And some Christians would say, never, never go there, don't do that. Others would be like, well, it's kind of okay as long as it's not like, you know, absolutely wrong. And I found the greatest question to get through the gray areas is simply this, ask the question, what honors God the most? Or what displays the glory of God to a watching world best? So that's not a question of right or wrong. That's a question of, in this situation, are is Christ's reputation being built up and cherished? Are you pointing to Christ and his holiness and his purity and his love, or are you just getting away with what you can, <laughs> even though it's technically okay? When you make it about God, it deals with the gray areas of most gray areas. <laughs> Not every gray, it's, uh, it becomes difficult. If the, the glory of God, and it's the same with our sin, if our grief is more over how we've dishonored God than how uncomfortable our lives are, although both will always be true, then it, we're on the right track. See, regret produces death, whereas repentance produces life. Regret therefore leads to no change, because one could say if there were no consequences, there wouldn't be change. So I would suggest for Israel, if Midian hadn't, uh, hadn't kind of oppressed them so much, it could have been 40 years before they cried out to God. Because clearly for seven years, they thought they could handle it. <laughs> right? Seven years, they, they, were, they were oppressed by this enemy, and they could, maybe, maybe they didn't kill all the animals. Maybe they didn't decimate all the lands, and they just stayed there. If there were no consequences, there might not be no change. With regret, there's no sorrow from grieving God, because the biggest problem when we sin is that we've grieved God and we've fractured our relationship with Him. There's a, there's a, there's a distance in our hearts. You think that's the greatest grief, <laughs> not the fact that we've technically done something wrong. It's, it's the fact that that leads to grief with God. The focus and the fruit are entirely different between regret and repentance. Depth of emotion is not necessarily any different. Because both come from a place of worship. Okay, So both include deep sorrow and regret. And we can, for example, be deeply sorrowful that we have been found out, that we have hurt someone and they think lesser of us. And if approval is actually what we live for, we're going to deeply be distressed. In the same way, if we dishonor God and we live for His honor, we'll be deeply distressed. I remember once, while working for the church many years ago, not in Colchester, um, I uh, got an email from someone that included a whole group, and I replied, thinking I was replying to one person, but I replied to all. And it wasn't a very gracious or honoring email. And I was suddenly hit by the fact that I just let seven people know unfiltered, harsh, reactionary, ungodly thoughts about this person. And it took me a while because the thing that hit me the most was that those people would think lesser of me. Now that's hurtful, 
You know, I was a young man. I was trying to build my reputation. I was pursuing something. And now there were these seven influential people who thought less of me. Rightly so, because I had done something foolish. And it took me a while to realize that actually the greatest sin was dishonoring God by dishonoring other people, as opposed to I was more grieved by worrying what people now thought of me. And for a while, facing those people was really hard. When I came to the place of realizing my main sin was dishonoring God, it wasn't nice facing those people, but what they thought of me wasn't defining me anymore, because what they thought of me was true. <laughs> but God had redeemed me, God had saved me, had washed my sin away. With regret, the focus is on self. With repentance, the focus is on God. Tim Keller says this, regret is all about us, how I'm being hurt, how my life is ruined, how my heart is breaking. But repentance is all about God, how he has been grieved, how his nature and, as creator and redeemer is being trampled on, how his repeated saving actions are being trivialized. So the question for us is, are we sorry about the consequences of our sin or and grieving the loss of some idol, comfort, affirmation, and approval, all the damage to our relationship with God. Is our grief primarily horizontal or vertical? If you are stuck in cyclical sin and making no progress, and we need to differentiate between lapses on a forward trajectory. We all fall into sin, keeping going. But if there are areas in our life where we're just making no progress, we need to ask the question whether we are actually repenting or whether we're just regretting. Because if repentance comes before the throne of God and we receive mercy and grace to find us in our help in our time of need, it suggests that repentance leads to change and progress. That's not the only reason you might be stuck in something, but often we really regret something, but our thought is not vertical towards God. And so we regret it and we try and get over it and we move on. We regret that it has a hold on our lives, but we're not as mindful and regret the fact that it dishonors God. And this one leads us just down a self-pity, morbid, feeling bad for ourselves, try and recover route. This one leads to coming before the throne of grace, receiving grace of mercy, and having victory over that area of our lives. It's not the only reason, but it is a question to ask. Tim Keller says this, with real repentance we can say, I deserved far worse than what happened. The real punishment we deserve fell on Jesus and will never come to me. And although I am more sinful than I realized, God is more gracious and merciful than I could have imagined. Not by giving me a flimsy forgiveness, by saying it doesn't matter, but by ensuring the wrong meets justice. And that justice is taken by God on the cross in Christ Jesus. And he declares it is finished, dealt with once and for all. We are not defined by his mis our mistakes, but by his grace. W the worst thing that you know about me is nothing compared to who I can truly be in a bad way. So when you think not so well of me, <laughs> more and more now by the grace of God, not in a hopefully trivial way, I have a little chuckle when I feel sorry that you think of me like that. I don't want you to think of me like that. I want to be the kind of person who's thought well of. But God knows me far worse than you do. He knows every little secret, even things I'm not aware of fully, God knows. And yet he loves me and approves of me. Much of the worldly repentance, and we can see this in the world around us, is actually framed to minimize damage to reputation. Confession and repentance in the world isn't really confession and repentance. It's made to minimize damage to our reputation. So we hear things like this. I'm sorry I did this. It was out of character. <laughs> I'm sorry I did that. I don't know what came over me. 
It was just for a few minutes. Mistakes were made. It was a long time ago when I was young and foolish. If I had my time again, the me today would never do that. Have we all heard that? And we do that, don't we? Don't we? It's, it, it's kind of a regret, but really it's managing people's thinking badly of us because we're saying that's not who I am. I would never truly do that, but it's an aberration of my character. No, no, no. It comes out of our hearts. It is partly who we are, and it doesn't define our identity. You see, in the world, repentance and part of its expression, confession, has moved from being theological to therapeutic. <laughs> we have to say it if we're in a position of power. We, have to, we even end up apologizing for other people's sin. Have you noticed that in the world around us? People end up apologizing for other people's sin because it's kind of what you meant to do, and it feels good, and it ticks certain boxes. Now, in some cases, I'm sure partly that's right, but that's not, uh, repentance is a thing to God. Yes, you can be sorry of what happened and grieve, but if you are not, it, it becomes this therapeutic way of deflecting and going to people for understanding rather than going to God for forgiveness. And therefore, it remains because only God can forgive, and only in coming to God can you move forward through something. Which side do you most commonly fall on, regret or repentance? I feel like dancing. It's not a serious moment here. Okay. See, regret or repentance? Which, which one breeds life? Does it, does it lead to life? Does it lead to, oh, I hate this, a grief. But God, I thank you, you're merciful. <laughs> what life there is in you, because you don't treat me as my sins deserve, because you treated Christ, it leads to life. It leads to vibrant worship when you come to church. Regret is an ever-increasing spiral to self-focus rather than to Christ-focus. Now, godly grief does have its place, obviously. It is what leads us to the other side. And in sending the prophet with a message of conviction, it's going to make the grace they receive even greater, sweeter taste. For the believer, grief over sin can never be a death. Destination. Rather, it is a tunnel through the mountain. We don't stay in that place of grief. We cast our guilt on Jesus because he asks for it and he promises to deal with it once and forever. When traveling, no one wants to stay in a tunnel. But when you go through a tunnel and you come out the other side, the vista is beautiful and the light is stunning. And you see this contrast between Peter and Judas. Many of you will know the story, okay? Both sinned grievously, shall we say. Peter, I'll never deny you, Jesus. Later in the day, he's denied Jesus three times. Judas betrays Jesus for silver. Now looking at the fruits of their lives, one, I think, illustrates regret and the other illustrates repentance. Peter we know, was then used by God. He grieved his sin, he repented his sin, he came to God, God came to him, and he was used by God mightily again. If anyone shouldn't have got over the obvious, pre-told, pre-warned sin, Peter. And yet God used him. I think that's because he came to Christ, received forgiveness and mercy, and came to be defined by God's word over him. Judas it seems, had no idea of understanding righteousness other than himself, because he regretted what he did. He went and threw the money back. But he didn't end up following Christ into life. He ended up coming to the end of his life. 
That is where regret leads us, whereas repentance takes us to the throne and into the approval that God has for us in Jesus. So what I want to do as I come to an end, because this is conviction starts this journey, not me telling you what is wrong. That can be part of it by the word of God. We're going to have communion in a moment. If you're watching at home, please get something you can share communion with us. It might be under your chairs. If you are not a Christian, please don't take communion. This is a way of us remembering Jesus and the sacrifice he made. Um, If you've got questions about it, this is a very visible way of saying, I believe in Christ. I believe what he's done for me. I believe my sin led to him dying on the cross. You could do it for the first time today if you're watching online or here. You could say for the first time, (laughs) Jesus, I need this. I, I need you to have died and taken my sin and born for me. We're going to read through some scripture, and then we're going to say a prayer together, and then we're going to come back to worship. And I just want to invite God by His Spirit to come and help us and lead us into conviction and repentance that leads to life. So Holy Spirit, we invite you this morning to come as we come to an end today. We cry out to you, and we long to cry out to you being God-minded, to being heavenly-minded. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and convict us of our sin. I'm going to read through 1 Corinthians. When we've finished it, then we will share communion together and we'll come back to worship. It says this in 1 Corinthians 11. I just want to remind us that repentance is not what especially bad Christians do. (laughs) It's part of the normal Christian life. And one of the things that maybe we need to learn and grow in in our tradition of churches is a deliberate time of confession and repentance and making it a habit of our lives. You see this in Scripture in the Psalms, search me, know me, forgive my hidden faults. And so I just want to read from 1 Corinthians and then we're going to Take communion together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in communion, we're declaring that we believe that Jesus did this for me. He bore physically. And in many other ways, the weight and the pain of my sin. So doing it in remembrance is looking back to his sacrifice. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, and we can take the bread now or the cup later, but we can. And let's do that now. Let's just do this in remembrance. Pause for a moment. Look back to the cross. then it goes on and says in the same way he took the cup after supper and he said this cup is the new covenant the new (laughs) the new way of relating with you do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he come this is the forward looking hope generating part of communion because the fact that we are looking forward to when it comes means he's no longer dead. He is alive. 
and he's coming back and he has defeated sin. All of your mess, all of my mess, didn't keep him in the grave. He overcame it. And there is a future hope when he is coming back. And then it goes on, verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, remember these are Christians speaking to you, will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And this is an opportunity to do that now. Say, Lord, is my life honoring you? That's the greatest desire of my heart. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. And so we look at ourselves and say, Lord, I'm doing this visible act. I'm recalling your sacrifice. Is my life honoring you? In every way it can. Forgive me, God, where it's not. And I come to you for help. I'm sorry I have grieved you. I'm sorry I have dishonored you. I long to be near to you. I long to delight your heart. I long to be in your presence unashamed. Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me. And now we're going to just read a prayer together as we come to an end. Depending what tradition of church you've been in, this would be a common prayer that's prayed in it helps us. We're going to read it together. It'll be on, be on the screen. We'll read it together slowly. Let's pray it together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you. Pause there. That's where it starts. We've sinned against you. And against our fellow humans in thought, word, and deed. Through negligence, again pause, often we think of sins as the wrong that we do. It's also the right that we fail to do. Sins of commission, where <laughs> there's so many sins of omission, things I've not done that would honor Christ. Through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault, we are truly sorry and repent of our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life. To the glory of your name. Amen. And often the person presiding over that service, not because they have power in themselves, but declare the truth of God's word over you, says this, Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy on you and pardon you and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and keep you in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I wonder if you could stand together and the band could come back. We're going to sing a song of 
coming to God in a moment. I just want to finish with this scripture from Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession because He's gone ahead, because He's victorious. For, more reason to hold fast to Christ, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, and I say this to you, therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness. Whatever reasons in your head you have for not coming to the throne of grace. Christ has paid enough penalty for you. It is finished. It is once and for all. And He understands. And if you are repentant, there is nothing to stop you coming before the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you're watching at home, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, come before the throne of grace. Call upon Jesus. He's not a slot machine to cash in on, but He is a Savior to fall upon and deliver you and redeem you and allow you to live a life with no regret, with no shame, a life that is has a future and a hope. And so Jesus, we look to you today and we come boldly before the throne of God <laughs> to receive this mercy. Amen. Let's worship together.